My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Slow Departure. The Sound Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Violence. Separation. The Deception. The Suspicious Resistance. The Unexpected Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Answer. The Beginning. Deception. Book 46. The Deception. Yeah, I didn't remember this one at all. It was amazing. It's amazing getting to read new Animorphs books that That's I have That's so exciting. Yet. Yeah, it was very stressful. I was very worried. I remembered that this one was the Visser 2 one. I did not really remember much of the specifics of it. I liked yeah. it though. I sort of felt like it was if you didn't remember Megamorphs 2 or Megamorphs 3, you get to kind of like relive what those books were about again. And it feels like kind of like a necessary step on a like, let's resolve the themes of the series mm. a little bit. But I like, I don't know. I feel like there are a lot of things that are unresolved. Like I want I want there to be more closure on some things that the Animorphs are kind of skipping over. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. What do you think, Ray? I also thought it was pretty good. I mean, it was interesting to see some of the themes that we've been talking about kind of come back again. Megamorphs, three or four or whatever that was, was a really good example. And also some of the discussions, like I thought some of the, the moralizing stuff was really interesting, like the ethical mm-hmm. philosophy of what they're doing. But, you know, it was it was not what I, definitely not what I predicted. Um, <laughs> but I thought it was, yeah, it was a, it was a fine animal book. And I think an interesting bridge from what we've seen over the past, especially over the past maybe... 15 to 20 books into what I imagine kind of the end arc of the series is going to have to be like, there's going to have to be more of these like big decisions and big conversations about what the Yerks are doing, what they're doing. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. It felt like a, a definitely a step up for the war things getting a little bit out Mm -hmm. of control I I liked it fine. I was very startled when it ended. Maybe this is an experience you've been having the whole time, Gray, where you're like, why is it over? There's so much left to resolve. And just that this one I didn't remember at all. Mm. There have been a bunch in recent books that I haven't remembered and I haven't had that impression so strongly. This was really like, wait, that was the last page? Wait, it's over? So yeah. the ending left me a little bit, you know, I felt like it was it was missing a lot. But yeah, there's some interesting stuff to discuss. Yeah. Yeah, that does happen to me fairly regularly, especially because I read it on the on the Kindle app. And so mm-hmm. the countdown towards the end of the book is, you know, that you have this many minutes left in the book. But there's always a, you know, I, I stop when it thinks the ghostwriter, but then there's more book. Oh, because you have the extra like chapter. The first yeah, yeah. chapter of the next book. And just about every book I get to that, the author would like to think, you know, El Giroux or whatever. And I'm like, wait, that was it? <laughs> what about, okay. <laughs> so yeah, I had that feeling here too. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's just, it's not exceptional in that, in that aspect. I'm there just was not definitely it. more of it this time than there usually Okay. All right. Is. That makes me feel a little better. Yeah. Ted, do you want to tell us what happened in this book with a summary that you've perfectly prepared? Boy, do I. Oh yeah. Um, so this book picks up right where we left off. Jake incorrectly identifies the title of the book. He says, this is the resistance. And unfortunately, this is the deception. But it's probably a good thing he didn't say that to the Andalites. 
So Jake is talking to the Andalites about what is what they've learned from Ava uh, about what the Yurks are planning on the Anadi homeworld. He tries to convince the Andalites to come help them out on Earth, but the Andalites are like, yeah, I don't know about that. Seem pretty skeptical. And uh, before they can really make their case or come to a resolution or feel confident that the Andalites are going to come help them out, the Yurks show up to intercept the transmission and they have to they have to flee. So a uh, situation with Jake talking to the Andalites barely even gets started and they have to kind of go to ground. The plot picks up with Axe, Tobias, and Marco hanging out in Axe's scoop, uh, listening to the occasional Yerk transmission through the Z-Space transponder. Axe has been able to decrypt like 10, 15% of their outgoing transmissions. And they just kind of, it occurs to them, hey, maybe these transmissions would be really important. What could we do to find out more? And so they decide to hack the NSA um, in order to get the code-breaking um, muscle needed to decrypt or understand the uh, the entirety of the York transmissions. They get through that in about a chapter and <laughs> uh, discover that Operation 9466 is a new York operation that's going to be carried out ASAP. So named because mm. Esplin has been promoted to Visser 1 and is following through with their open war kind of plan that the Enmorphs were worried about in Book 45. Wait, Ted, why is it named that for Esplin? That's Esplin's Yerk number. Oh, okay, thank you. So all they learn from the transmission is that phase one of the plan is going into effect very soon and somewhere off the coast of California. And the animor- by the time the Animorphs realize you know, that something is going down out in the ocean at a specific time, they only have about seven hours to do anything about it. They realize that there's no way uh, any of their morphs can get that far out into the ocean in that amount of time. So they conclude that the only thing that they can do is break into a military base and steal a fighter jet uh, that can go real fast out into the ocean. So Axe and Rachel knock out and morph humans on the airbase in order to steal a jet. They bring the rest of the Enwarfs with them as fleas. And when they get to the location out over the ocean, they discover a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier, the USS George Washington. They crash the jet into the ocean and get aboard the aircraft carrier, discover that Visser 2 is arriving via helicopter and he is has infested Admiral Carrington, who is here to kind of oversee things. The first part of the plan is the Admiral infests the captain of the aircraft carrier. The Animorphs try and stop it. Uh, but while they're, they've been willing to cross some lines, such as hacking the NSA and morphing humans, they're unwilling to fight the innocent uh, Marines and Navy officers aboard the ship who they think are uninfested just because they're naturally worried about, you know, animals attacking the middle of their aircraft carrier. So the top brass on the ship all get infested. The Animorphs can't stop that. The Animorphs do learn the details of the plan. It turns out Visser 2 is a, a zealous yes Yerk follower of Visser 1 and is excited to first create a situation where this aircraft carrier thinks that um, Chinese missiles are 
going to be attacking the aircraft carrier and other American targets so that the USS George Washington deploys its nuclear-equipped fighter jets in a retaliatory strike against China. The Animorphs managed to stop that plan from happening and, and call off the immediate response. But they learn from interrogating Visser 2 that it doesn't matter exactly what happens on this particular aircraft carrier because uh, the Yerks are going to be, you know, sending out, sending messages back to the U.S. saying, oh man, we did get attacked by the Chinese. And so it's off to the races in terms of fallout nuclear war. Um, so the Yerks plan is to start World War III and the Animorphs have no way of stopping it because Visser 2 is irrational and, and can't be reasoned with. So they, after the first part of the Yerks plan is interrupted, bug fighters start openly attacking the ship and it quickly becomes an all-out battle where the uninfested humans on the ship realize they're under attack and do their best to fight back. They sort of understand that the animals on the ship are helping them. Uh, and so the Animorphs help the uninfested humans fight off the bug fighters and the infested humans on the ship. But the Yerks have the element of surprise and a pretty overwhelming force and laser beams. Um, so there's not a whole lot the humans can do to fight back. The Animorphs are kind of falling apart in terms of their ability to come up with a plan that stops war from escalating. And Axe suddenly has a very chilling to him insight about how to get through to Visser 2. So he comes up with a plan to capture Visser 2, take him on a fighter jet equipped to a nuke back over the Yerk pool and threaten to nuke the Yerk pool, destroying, you know, 99% of all Yerks on Earth or whatever, thus rendering the, the, you know, the world war completely useless, given that all the Yerks would be dead. And um, he proposes this to Jake. Jake is like, no, dude, I, I can't sign off on that. So Axe knocks Jake out, convinces some of the other Animorphs to help him with the plan. And moments before Axe has to go through with his plan, Visser 2 caves and says, fine, fine, I'm going to call off the, uh, I'm going to call off our, our plan to start World War III, you wild and crazy Andalite you. And Axe <laughs> thinks to himself, oh God, would I have gone through with it, but I have done it. And then the book ends abruptly. Yeah. Did I actually get something wrong? Or are you just no, going to disagree no, no, about it? No, no, okay. I just don't think the that Fizzer 2 is irrational. He's saying that he will die to further the Yurk cause, which, I mean, I guess you could say is an irrational stance to take, but he seems really clear-headed about it. He's like, no, mm, this is interesting. more important. I will die for this. And they're like, crap, we can't threaten you personally. What else can we do? Well, should we should we just talk about Mr. 2? Should we start there? <laughs> get into the get sure, into the details? Yeah. So I, I mean, thought there are a couple of things going on. Gray, what, what was your take? I was just gonna say I see where Jenny is coming from, specifically as regards like the the fact that he's willing to die for this plan, fine. Like we could <laughs> consider that a rational decision. His overall character, I would not say is overly rational in his approach to the world. I mean, one, this plan is yikes. But also the way that he describes his plan is like the most ridiculous evil overlord. Like there's a maniacal laugh halfway through <laughs> it. I mean, this man is not, he, this Yurk is not well. He says at one point, I've made you wait long enough 
for me to reveal my evil plan to you in a monologue. Yeah. And then he stands up straight, despite the fact that he has been stripped of his uniform and is standing there in his underwear. It's also, it's pretty funny. They're just meeting him for the first time. And he's like, yes, I've made you wait long enough. Like, it didn't what, make you say so you didn't explain it before. No, I don't know. The animorphs were all like, wow, he's psychotic because they like throwing that word around. And then they're like, well, we just can't reason with him at all. But then Axe does very successfully reason with him in the end. He's like, I will blow up the yerk pool. And the guy's like, no, you won't. Oh, no, you will. Okay, fine. I'll call off the thing. Like, I don't know. He seems like not a great guy, but he's thinking clearly. That's interesting. So I definitely, so there's a, there's a couple, there's a couple parts of it for me. And I think I agree with you in some ways and I don't agree with you in some ways. Right. Mm -hmm. So like at the end, yeah, right. Axe is able to get one over on him, but I read it as like the Animorphs are right about the, like the character of Visser 2, that he is a, you know, bloodthirsty, irrational, they call him psychotic, you know, guy who is so set on the, you know, coming Yerk dominion that he'll do anything to make it happen, even if he's destroyed in the process. And he has all of this, like, rhetoric about how glorious it will be to watch the humans destroy themselves and, you know, so I think it's pretty standard Yerk fair to me. I don't know. Sure, sure, Some sure. Some are more personally ambitious than that. But, but what I would say to that is like, you can't get through to them by saying like, hey, buddy, your plan won't work, which I think we'll talk about it, Gray. His plan won't work. But the point is like, okay, well, we can't appeal to his his baser instincts or whatever. We can't like strong arm him. Like, I think we're supposed to take that as kind of like red. And so the the way that I read the end is less, it's like a rational thing, but it's more like Axe has to out psychotic Visser 2 by threatening this, mm. you know, like, well, oh, you're going to get the humans to nuke each other, but I'm going to nuke you first. Ha ha ha. And then Visser 2 is like, oh crap, you know, like better luck next time. I just um, don't see, I mean, you could say that any sort of like blowing other people up is inherently irrational or like zealotry is irrational, you know, but I don't know, saying he like out psychotic, like there's, I don't know, psychosis involves a disconnect from reality. And I don't know, they both seemed really aware of what was yeah. going on. But right. So, so that's the other part of it where I do really agree with you that the character of Visser 2 is cartoonishly villainous. Yes. But the choices that he is making outside of maybe what I think is a misunderstanding of how mutually assured destruction works in the year 2000, but the idea that, that the Animorphs come to the conclusion that he's like a cartoonish villain and he can't be reasoned with because he's willing to bomb people is of course ridiculous because of what we know about human history and what we know mm. about Andalite history and what we know about all the sorts of reasons why people decide to do terrible things such as Tobias, but we'll also talk, we'll also talk about that more. So yeah, it's, it was kind of a shortcut. It was kind of a shortcut to have him be so cartoonish mm. in a way Although, that was like, mm -hmm. I do think this doesn't, this gives the books maybe more credit than they deserve. Like his, you know, grandstanding evil overlord over the topness was actually extremely effective. Like if you have these Andalite bandits in your office and they're like, we'll kill you, kill you if you don't call off this plan. And you're like, I don't care if I die. <laughs> and then they don't kill you. That works real well. I think it probably wasn't an act, but if it was, well done. You're right. If the goal of the confrontation with the Animorphs is merely to get out of it alive, which is a perfectly fair goal. And if that's his goal, you're right. His grandstanding 
is fine because he does get out of it alive, I guess. Oh, there's no reason for him to have told them his plan. So, okay, I think someone who would tell that, them his plan yeah. can't be clever enough to have put on this act. I take it all back. That's, that was what I was going to yeah. say. I mean, if your goal is to have the plan go through, not Yeah, good, he did it all wrong. Oh, okay, right, never right, right. mind. No credit to him. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, let's talk about the plan. What the Yorks are trying to do? Yes, yeah, yeah, the Yorks plan. Let's talk about it. Okay, so this is my understanding. So Visser 3 is now Visser 1. Mm-hmm. Esplan is like, let's go to the races and blow stuff up. Let's name but, a plan after me. Right. Uh, so it's the Edomorph's reason that the Yerks are a little bit hesitant about going to all-out war because they're not sure if humans will be able to successfully fight back, right? That Was there another concern about them going to open war? That I do remember them being like, they don't know what abilities the humans have, which is probably kind of false because they've infested a lot of humans. And so they probably do. And they've infested some high up yeah. humans. They probably can make a pretty fair guess about like, at least they don't have any like space-based weapons. So the plan is to basically create a situation where the nuclear armed US forces attack China and create a global thermonuclear war. The point of which will be the humans will blow each other up so much that it will be easy for the Yerks to roll in afterward and pick up the pieces, you know, with the remaining, you know, 500 million humans or, mm-hmm. or whatever it ends up being. Is that the gist of the plan? Did yeah, you all so. have the same yeah. interpretation of it? Yeah, that seemed to be the, the gist of it, generally. Humans are kind of scary a little bit, so let's have them hurt each other before we go in Yeah, take them over. So, I mean, again, to your point about they've infested a bunch of humans, you'd think they probably would have been infested someone who would be able to tell them that the total destructive capacity of what humanity can bring to bear against humanity is more than enough to wipe out all the humans and all the Yerks currently on the planet. So I'm not totally sure why they think that World War III would be a good thing for their invasion. Yeah. Oh, that makes more sense as an objection. Because I was like, I don't know why Gray and Ted think this wouldn't work. They could definitely start World War III. Seems like they oh, yeah. Oh, no. They can, they can start the war. definitely start World sure. War III. <laughs> it would That's just be not a the bad problem. idea. Okay, yes. Yeah. It just doesn't get them to their end goal. I had the same objection to the plan, which was, yes, Congratulations, you have started <laughs> World War Three. but... Now what? <laughs> what are you going to do next? I mean, this reminded me of nothing so much as that... Do you guys remember the an internet video from the early internet about... Oh, Fire-Z missiles? Fire-Z missiles. The Fire-Z missiles. <laughs> oh, yeah. Early internet video. The time, the time. Right, the end of the world. <laughs> the, yeah. Yes. Like, it's so good. And and that, that is what this reminded me of. I was like, okay, but like... If you remember, with the crisscrossing of the nuclear bombs, what happens is that no one survives, or if they do, it is a very small number of people. So if the problem purpose... is that video hadn't come out yet. I, I think that's really the problem. <laughs> a lot of things hadn't happened when this book was written, and we'll talk about mm-hmm. some of them. Yep. But I, I think they have not really understood the scope of the problem if they start World War Three as a nuclear uh, a nuclear war. I mean, the, the point of having a species of level four or five or whatever the hell class five class five species a class five species is in part the large number of infestable humans yeah which you are about to not have (laughs) anymore yeah okay so i feel like the yerks are really missing a middle ground here 
So they have this whole sharing thing where they're like, we'll recruit people voluntarily. And then sometimes when we have to, we'll take them involuntarily. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, they have, let's blow up all of humanity for unknown ends. Mm -hmm. And I think they're missing sort of a more aggressive involuntary infestation. Like we've talked before about like, why don't they just sneak into hospitals with Yerks and infest everyone there? Why don't they break into people's houses and do it there? Why don't they like run whole classrooms of kids through an infestation program? And they do it a little bit in this where they forcibly infest the captain of the aircraft carrier, but they bring like four Yerks on this mission. They bring a whole Yerk pool and like four Yerks. Why aren't they just infesting everyone they can find? Because yeah. once you like, you might have to be a little careful so like rumors don't spread and then you do have this open war. But like maybe before you move to this open war, you just try to bulk up your numbers as much as possible. I don't know why they're not doing that. Well, I mean, even if, even in this very specific instance, and again, as you say, this is a middle ground, right? This is somewhat less aggressive. But if you brought a, a portable yerk pool with 6,000 yerks in it onto this ship, put it in the laundry room and infested one sailor at a time, you yeah. would have an aircraft carrier that's Spend would be completely infested. Infest everyone. Yeah. Maybe it would be hard to like get them to a Candrona or something. I, I mean, don't know. Maybe, but like that's Hopefully they have a supply train situation yeah. going. Okay, that is fascinating. I never thought about the the yeah, the, the Yerk pool capacity is a strict limit mm. to the number of people that can be infested because mm-hmm. you're gonna have like a thousand people lining up at McDonald's every you know, like <laughs> constantly. Like that's gonna be weird, right? Yeah. Right. But so then the fact that they're not investing in like Yerk pool infrastructure is something that has never like they keep Sometimes digging they out do, they're like digging yeah. out the Yerk pool to make it bigger, but that doesn't solve the problem of like you need like multiple ones. They they do sometimes they like try to put something in the North Pole to turn all swimming pools into yerk pools or then they try to build portable candronas and the Animorphs always stop that specific operation and then they never try that thing yeah. again. Which, did you and, like how Marco lampshades that yes, in this book? Yes. Marco's like, well, this is how it's been working. You know, they do a plan mm-hmm. and then we push back so they know they can't, right? Like, <laughs> I loved that. That was so funny. They don't try but, that plan again. My assumption has always been kind of that the Yerks are being unnecessarily cautious that mm-hmm. if they went into an all-out war against humanity, they'd just be able to win. Like they could destroy enough high-value military targets mm-hmm. that they it mm-hmm. wouldn't matter. But I wonder if a better headcanon is just that it's sort of like as soon as the CIA figures out or, you know, any, you know, superpower like uh, intelligence agency figures out that aliens are here and they're hostile, that humans would be able to put up a really good fight. So like, if that is true, that basically like, as soon as three hospitals get infiltrated and infested and the US Mm -hmm. government is like, hey, something is happening. (laughs) And then the Yerks aren't that subtle or whatever. That's a good point. Then Then like, you wonder if it would actually be harder Maybe bug fighters with lasers are just completely the best, but given how much the Animorphs can kind of explode them, like <laughs> probably mm-hmm. probably humans can put up a pretty good fight once they got wise to it. But that sort of says like, then the Animorphs really should have been telling people, right? They should tell people now, probably. Yeah. Like this um, is the time. So yeah, it's definitely one of those like, it's baked into the premise of the series and kind of a way that doesn't hold up, right? Like, yeah. 
as it escalates, it like it becomes weirder that either the Yerks or the humans doesn't have enough of an advantage that like one of the sides should be able to play more aggressively. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like this is this is the thing you see happen a lot in superhero movies. Like I feel like Wonder Woman really had this issue where it's like, okay, the problem is World War One, which is a war fought extremely diffusely on like all these different fronts and like just soldiers spread out in trenches over just like hundreds of miles and and you need to figure out, okay, but we have a main character who's a superhero and she needs to be able to solve the problem. So, oh, okay, the war is actually being caused by, spoilers for Wonder Woman, a god of war and like she just needs to take him out and it'll all get way better. And I feel like Animorphs is running into this problem where it's like, okay, yes, there's been this sort of small scale guerrilla war that sort of makes sense. And now that it's expanding, how do we have it be so that like six kids can make a difference? In this case, it's by like taking out the person at the top and getting him to change his stance. And I don't know what they'll do to further that. Like, is it always going to be possible for the six kids to do it? Should they really just go to the authorities and tell them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ted, of course, knows what happens no, no, no. much better than I, I mean, do. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a great, I think it's a really, really good point. I feel like... This book does like a pretty good job of squaring that circle in terms of like, yeah, yeah. we're nine from the end and they're presumably, we're not going to repeat this exact scenario, but like either the escalation will continue or they will decide to tell people or there'll be some other, like mm-hmm. it's clear that they're up for breaking the premise. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see like my main question coming out of this is like, at this point there has to be they've crossed the line in terms of U.S. military knows something is up. Mm -hmm. Like after this Mm -hmm. book, the U.S. military is going to have some kind of response. I I find it highly implausible if we get to the next book and they're like, Mr. Two successfully covered it up and the the government still doesn't know anything. Like, especially, and also the NSA got hacked. We'll get into that. Like (laughs) there's, so, so I don't know if that will be part of the escalation. I actually genuinely don't remember like mm-hmm. how it, it plays out in terms of the information asymmetry. We also had that bit in the last book. I think it was the last book where, or maybe it was two books ago. When did they, when did Marines steal a bug fighter and drive off into the mountains? Didn't that happen oh, a few that books was ago? That was in 44. Yeah. yeah. So like, again, <laughs> I'm kind of still waiting for the other shoe to drop there. It probably never will, but like well, they know something's up. I do not know very much about the military structure of the United States Army and Air Force and Navy in this case as well. But it seems very surprising. It it seems very unlikely to me that after what is essentially a mutiny or like civil war on board an aircraft carrier that essentially ensures that, I mean, the commander of the vessel is killed. You know, lots of other sailors and soldiers are are killed as well. And one of the things that I want to find out after the ending is how what exactly happens to all of the people on board this ship who have just had a really vicious battle against their fellow sailors for reasons they do not understand i mean if you're yeah. if you're an uninfested sailor on this ship kind of going about your everyday duties one day your fellow sailors just kind of started shooting at you uh-huh uh-huh you're in the middle of the ocean right like this isn't it's not like they can get reassigned like mm. this is a huge deal and yeah. i do not see how it's possible even for this to be resolved easily 
just aboard that single aircraft carrier. Do you think the Yerks will just blow it up? Because maybe that will, you know, result in their world war anyway, because someone's going to have to be blamed for that. I mean, mechanical yeah. failure, maybe, or something maybe. results in explosions. What I kind of want to see is the like large scale drama. And I'm sure we can't get this because we only get the Animorphs perspectives and this wouldn't be part of the story they'd be privy to. But like the military starts to figure out something's going on. They start cracking down on all their security measures. But the Yerks are like, uncharacteristically, all right, this attempt to start World War III failed, but actually it's pretty easy to like do some stuff to start World War III. Let's just try some other ways. And it's sort of a battle of wits of the Yerks who know everything that's going on and can infest people versus the mostly uninfested like national security infrastructure that's trying to prevent this from happening, but doesn't really know what they're facing. Like that could be really fascinating. Mm -hmm. We also know from the, as far back as the David sequence that at least one world leader is infested Right? Oh, right, of a, one of the major countries. Oh, yeah. And who could it be who has like a Kandrona? Like, it must be the right. US, except it must also not be the US because things right. are very and, different. And that whole, the way that played out, like, you have Yeltsin, like, have this surreal encounter with, yeah. with you know, animals and, yeah. Yeah. So, like, it must have been, there must be, there must have been something playing out over the past couple of years oh, behind the so scenes, right? right? Yeah. So Where the it, Secret Service is like, we were invaded by wild animals. Something's going on. Yeah. So it would be fascinating to get that kind of like uh, naive perspective. This is also why I want, I forget if I pitched this actually on the podcast, but the Melissa Chapman PI uh, <laughs> miniseries where Melissa is just investigating all sorts of supernatural phenomena and ends up figuring out that there's an alien infestation. <laughs> I love that. Yes. When we do our, our fanfic challenge. Yeah. Yeah. After the podcast is over, we'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very bizarre situation. And I really don't see, I mean, we've got nine books left, so I'm going to have to figure this out at some point, like to, for prediction purposes. Mm -hmm. Like I do not see how this is going to get wrapped up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fine prediction. Maybe it'll go the like classic supervillain, like alien brute, where it turns out there's just one like master yerk and you kill the master yerk and like, you know, like the queen bee yerk and sure. all the rest of them just die. Just faint on the <laughs> battlefield. Yeah, Ender's yeah, well, Game style. Who is a Wonder Woman style god of war, but Kryak? Oh. Fascinating. <laughs> Great. I mean, Gray well, really wants that to happen because then she'll have bingo. I really do. I don't know if he would look good in the Wonder Woman outfit. Well, he's not Wonder Woman. <laughs> he's Wonder Woman style. <laughs> You're editing this, you could cut that. <laughs> I know, I, changed, I first I imagined Cryak, and then I was like, that doesn't make sense. So I imagined <laughs> the Elemist, and I was like, oh God. Thanks, I hate it. <laughs> I love it. I feel like I have a lot more to say about the overall like strategy stuff, but should we talk about... The other theme of this book, ethics. Oh man, yeah, there's so much <laughs> ethics stuff. It's really, yeah. Mostly There's ethics. so much. Yeah. So they have this conversation early on in the book, which was a little bit weird because they weren't actually discussing any really intense decision at that point where Jake's like, things are different. From now on, we take what we need. We do what we have to, no matter what the consequences. And Cassie objects a little bit. And then Jake's like, there's only one morph that will get us thousands of miles out to sea in the time we have left. Human. Human. And I was like, okay, this is a really great and like dramatic statement that you're making about 
the state of the war. It feels right for this point in the series. It feels like really significant. We've just had this conversation with the Andalites where they're like, ha, we don't believe you and we're probably not going to help. And uh, we know that they're moving towards open war. Like that all makes sense. But also they've morphed humans before. Yes. They did it in book 21 where they were like, even Cassie decided, like agreed there was no other way. And they morph these like three random guys who they knock out and leave on the ground and like do the whole thing in the hotel that ends up being all fake. But you know, they've done it before. Like this didn't merit that discussion it was helpful that they had that discussion for stuff later in the book, but it was really weird to read it and be like, wait, you're, oh, and you're worried about stealing a plane. Wait. <laughs> it was very deja vu. Like I, I read that part and I was like, I, did I make up that we already resolved this discussion? They already did both of the things they're talking about. They already morphed humans. They already stole a plane. Granted, we voted that out of canon, but this book doesn't know that. Like, they stole a plane for much less good reasons and for much less sound, like, logistical. Like, they crashed it into the Yerk pool already. Yeah, it, yes. Um, I mean, it wasn't is... a nuclear-equipped <laughs> plane, but still. They also don't make good use of their new desire to morph humans because Axe eventually gets there. He morphs the fighter jet pilot, and when he gets on the ship, he morphs like the sailor in the laundry room. And then I think he ends up morphing Admiral Carrington as well to give the yeah. order. Yeah. So he he does this. It's like very, um, there's this there's this great like video game series called Hitman where you play this big stocky bald guy and it's a, like a stealth game. And one of the main mechanics is you're like infiltrating a place, but what you can do is knock out anyone and then steal their uniform, which will let you sneak into a different area, mm-hmm. except you're always this huge stocky bald guy wearing like a butler's outfit or something, right? So nice. it's, it's, it's kind of hilarious, but, but Axe kind of does that where he like, he knocks out the guy to get into the next area and knocks at you. Like he keeps going yeah. up the chain of command, which is like very video gamey and smart. But like the Animorphs don't really consider, they could all just like capture the first six innocent people they say, tie them up, apologize later, and then like blend in seamlessly to what's going on in the ship. Like yeah. if they're going to cross this boundary, they should do it in like a way that maximizes their chances of victory. And <laughs> they not should just take advantage of, of the actual, they've, it's sort of, so Axe has this whole thing at the beginning about like situational ethics, basically. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's, I love this. It, he basically says, I'll, I'll find the passage, but he no. basically says like, humans will make a decision and they'll be like all moral and ethical about it. And then they'll be like, but you know, the situation changed. So now I've made the complete opposite decision <laughs> for select because the, the situation changed a little bit. So does this, and, this is like Andalite philosophy is like strict Kantianism, right? Like yeah. <laughs> humans are allowed to be more utilitarians or other things. I think Axe might just be being naive. And I think he admits that at some point. He's like, maybe I shouldn't be surprised given what I've seen of my people at this point. But there's a little bit of like making Axe the outsider in a way that like isn't quite consistent with what we've seen of the Andalites. But I guess also it's even if your people are hypocritical, you could observe in other people and be like, wow, they're so hypocritical. That's terrible. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's funny that he, he looks down on situational ethics despite the fact that he's being naive about it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, is it just that he buys into the do-goodery image that the Andalites want to project mm. in a way that these human teens do not when it comes to 
human warriors. I think it is more about Axe being naive than it is about like what Andalites, Andalites are like. Humans. But yeah. I totally buy that Andalites, he would sit down in an Andalite philosophy 101 class and some Andalite would be like, okay, well, there's one strict code of ethics and the situation doesn't matter. And <laughs> this is, you must, you must learn this young Andalite. Yeah, I buy that. I do think he has a slightly more nuanced view of it, only because there's that bit at the end where he talks about the Andalites being the the meddlers of the universe. Mm-hmm. And like, here's another place where I've decided that my ethics are kind of more important than the people around me, than their ethics, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, a nice nuance and a good reminder of the Andalites as the universal Americans. Mm-hmm. But But yeah, I think you're right that that would be like, a whole nother discussion of how does that work? It's weird thinking about Axe. Axe probably sees himself in a position of power amidst the Animorphs or like having some sort of innate privilege, like superiority. Like, and I, it's easy for me to forget that. Like when he's like, yeah, here I go meddling again. That changes a lot if I shift my point of view to be like, oh, right. He is thinking of himself as someone with like this sort of inherent power that the Animorphs don't have as Mm -hmm. just by, because he's an Andalite and because he's a little bit like sidelined in the group a lot, like he, I I don't see him that way. And like remembering like, oh yeah, the Andalites are like a little imperialist. Okay. They're, they're kind of the Americans of the galaxy. It, It changes that decision a little I think. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating to think about the Andalite meddling in terms of Ciro's kindness mm. right because like right so that was giving the Yurks the freedom to like make their own decisions instead of having the Andalites make the decisions for them mm-hmm. right so oh, he's yeah. kind of doing the same he thinks of himself as doing the same thing here mm. where he goes to Jake and he's like look man this is the right thing to do we have to threaten to bomb the Yurk pool and be willing to carry it out if Mr. Mm-hmm. Two doesn't relent and Jake is like, I can't sign off on that. And Axe is like, oh, of course you shouldn't. And basically <laughs> makes the unilateral call that he can do Locks it. Locks Jake out. Right, yeah. right, right. And he, so he's saying like, okay, because I'm an outsider, I can, I can take this on me. Mm-hmm. Even though it's like a psychological tool he can use to, to carry through with the decision that is very difficult. But I don't mm-hmm. think that he's correct. In that like, it won't affect him as much? Or in that that it, that it won't affect him as much and that he is really any different from him making the call is really any different from Jake making the call. Mm. Any of the Animorphs, I think, could choose to make the decision unilaterally yeah. uh, and, and carry out a plan like that without having to be an alien. I think that's, that's yeah. the thing that Axe uses. But like if Rachel did it, she would say, I'm the reckless one who does whatever it takes to win. I was right. thinking about Rachel and also about Tobias with the Mercora. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bunch of Animorphs be like, I'm, we've seen a bunch of Animorphs be like, I'm going to take this decision onto myself so that the rest of you don't have to bear the burden. And yeah, none yeah. of the other ones have had to knock Jake out in order to do it, but <laughs> yeah. True. But you know, Tobias lied to all of them, like, although he actually also brought Axe in on that. But yeah, thinking about Axe's, like Axe keeps calling himself an alien, which Mm -hmm. is like when he's thinking about that decision, which is such an interesting way to think about it. Because of course, you never think of yourself as an alien normally, like you think of people who aren't from your planet as aliens. And he is like consciously casting himself like that to distance himself from the situation. Yeah. So that he doesn't have to think about how if he follows through, he's going to blow up like an entire city. It's fascinating. That just made me think about how like 
So this is this has a this book is like a callback to Megamorphs two because of the Mercora thing. Mm-hmm. A callback to Megamorphs three because of the like glory and horrors of war thing. Mm-hmm. And it's also a callback to Megamorphs four in the oh. the decision that Axe is making because you mm-hmm. see Axe kind of like isolated in Megamorphs four, being like, "Well, you know, I'm gonna do all of this stuff to try and help the humans and help the Andalites, but like I'm a I'm a meddler or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they kind of like escalate things to like, let's take over the blade ship and, you know, attack and, and blow things up and stuff. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, I'm willing to sacrifice myself and I'm gonna I'm gonna help the humans as much as possible. And I think we see that again here. Like Axis had this arc of like he was a genuine outsider. He sort of betrayed the Animorphs a couple of times to Andalites and then regretted that choice. And we saw in his last book that he was like, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like Mm. with Estrid and and all those folks. But while his loyalty to the Animorphs isn't in question, how he thinks of himself as like what he's in the fight for seems to be still at stake. Because he's Mm. like, I want to be back on the Andalite homeworld someday if I can survive. Like, how am I going to make this happen. He's in denial about how much he loves being a human, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. It's really interesting. He's like trying to, he's trying to embrace his Andaliteness as like a shield or like a thing that can help him mm. carry through the fight. But I think it is more true that he like, I think at this point he wants to win for the same reason the Animorphs want to win. Like, I think that- To save Earth and the humans on it or- Yeah, yeah. 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 And I don't think he would be happy leaving. No, yeah, I think it would be rough to leave that fight unfinished. Yeah, I like that. I like that take on it too, because he does spend a lot of time talking about the Animorphs as his family Mm -hmm. and the kind of cognitive dissonance of having them as his family and becoming more and more human. Like there's a few points where he talks about, see how well I've learned to intimate human expressions. And I really, I understand these people so well. And because of that, I think you're right that he is emphasizing his own alienness as part of a, almost a defense mechanism in that way. I hadn't thought about it like that. I had mostly been like, what are you talking about, Axe? Like, you're obviously, this is your family now. Like, what are you talking about? But it, it does make sense if he's thinking about it as trying to make himself remember that he is not a human in some ways. And I wonder, he could, he's also probably like protecting himself from being so disillusioned by how things go down in the first chapter with the Andalite oh, High Command, yeah. right? Like, because he wants his people to be better than this, right? Yeah. And he, he gives it his best shot trying to convince them. Mm-hmm. But um, can, I mean, we still need to go back to ethics at some point, but can we talk about how much we hate the Andalite High Command? Ugh. <laughs> Worst. Dare I say, worse than oh. the Elemist. Oh, yes. The Elvis yeah. at least, like, knows what's going on, so you can, like, kind of trust his information. Like, the Andalites, ugh. They, it is just so ridiculous to be like, oh, you need our help on your planet? No, you're probably just asking for it because you need it so much. What? That doesn't make any sense. The whole conversation was so frustrating. How do they even know about the Anadi homeworld situation if they didn't have real intel, right? Like, it's True. it's absurd. What a weird lie that would be to make up. Here's a very specific, like, tactical situation, like, you know, piece of, like, infrastructure information we have about this Anadi system that's who knows how many light years away, and we don't even have space travel, but we're going to make it up to convince mm-hmm. you to come to Earth. Like, that doesn't make any sense. No, it's real dumb. And, of course, it, like, has to be that way so that the Animorphs don't, like, just get saved by the Andalite fleet, because that would be too easy. 
be. But... Well, it's also a oh, little bit. Lights. Yeah, but it's also a little bit like it's so clear that this has to play out over more books than this, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a weird initial gambit. And like, there's really no telling if or when or how this conversation will be continued. But mm-hmm. like, you get Jake having, it's like, it's so awesome where Jake is like, yes, I'm great. And then an Andalite is like, no, you're not. And then Jake says some stuff about the Naughty Homeworld. And then a different Andalite shows up and it's like, so they've clearly gone up the ranks. Mm-hmm. Like they're talking mm-hmm. to management now, right? <laughs> but it's unclear if that person is like the most supreme decision maker yeah. or whatever, right? And then they kind of have this little back and forth where like they say, oh, we captured Visor 1 and X, like I'm X, I'm Alfanger's brother. And like, and but, they're like, yeah, you know, we will always honor you for your brother, but there have been some rumors about you. Yeah. And then, uh, and, but then the conversation gets cut off. So like you really, we really have very little to go on, on like what is happening. That's true. It might just be that one Andalite is really terrible, but also he's like clearly an important part of Andalite High Command. So I'm sticking with my claim that Andalite. No, the Andalites are terrible. Oh, no. I'm not but, trying to defend them. I'm just saying yeah. it's just like they need, they need to like move that incrementally forward and then from like the second chapter on it's like okay now we're doing a different book and it's episode <laughs> yeah. right so like yeah this is just like a thing that we'll have to continue into a different book yeah, yeah 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 but like i do i do hold out some hope that like maybe this guy is just really sus- really suspicious and just really sucks but like maybe we'll get some more sensible andalites she said as naive as x do we know the situation in terms of like who is infested in the high command there has not been any follow-up to that since like book eight. Okay, um, just just wondering. The Andalite homeworld thing. I mean, we do know there are other traitor Andalites from book 18. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but there aren't any, there's still known other, no known other Andalite controllers other okay. than, than uh, Oh yeah, Alan. 18 was the one where Axe is like, Fissor 3 has been to the Andalite homeworld. And we're like, no, that is a no. stupid conclusion to draw. But clearly like the series did want us to think that. Yeah. yeah. But we don't know anything else about it. Okay. One thing I wanted to say about the first chapter was they don't connect these dots, mm-hmm. but the Anadi homeworld information is the information that the that sort of justifies the Animorphs going all out in book 45 to rescue Ava, right? So yes. Ava knew the stuff about the Dracon cannons waiting in ambush for the Andalites. And though yep. they, don't, they don't explain that in detail in the beginning, it's like, it's clear that that's intel that they've learned from talking to Ava. And she's not in this book at all, right? But it's mm-hmm. I love seeing that continuity. Oh, yeah. Where, like, it's clear that that is kind of, that stuff is being followed up on now in a way mm-hmm. that makes sense. And so, like, yeah. I think that there's they have to pace out the escalation and like having those other things come home to roost. Like one of the ones that I was most excited about seeing in this book was like, how is the Jake Marco dynamic going to be different? Mm-hmm. doesn't come up at all. Yeah. Not yeah. at all mentioned in this book. So like, I'm, there's a lot of trust that these things that are now getting <laughs> kicked into the air will like be caught and resolved at some point, but it's yeah. also really exciting to kind of have these like individual episodes still feel very episodic, but you can feel the pieces kind of moving behind the scenes in a fun yeah. way. So like, I'm excited about how that's going, but of course- but, like, what a challenge it must be to work with ghostwriters at this point in the series for that kind of thing, because the person who was writing this probably hadn't read 45 yet. They probably had like a plot summary mm-hmm. of 45, but Good point. I'm sure that Apple Grant had to give them an outline for this one before they got the manuscript for 45. And like, it must just be so hard to mm. work that continuity stuff. Yeah, I was, I got very confused at that part at the beginning where they were like, here's what's happening on the Anadi homeworld. And I was like, 
did I know this? And I have completely <laughs> forgotten. Like, when did we? And then they're like, and then I thought, oh no, they must have learned it from Ava. And then they confirmed that, like, no, yeah, because yeah. we we liberated Visser One's host, and now we know this. I was like, okay. I do appreciate that they do stuff where, like, you know, we don't need to see that conversation with Ava. We can just mm-hmm. hear that the Animorphs learned it from her. Like, they're very efficient in that way. They are, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, we we got distracted from our ethics conversation. Oh, yeah. There was, like, just such a strong, like, is it justified to now do this thing? Do the ends justify the means, that whole thing? Well, your point book. was sort of, like, they sort of tee it up in the beginning with these yes. really trivial ethical things. Right. But then they get to a oh, yeah. legit concern which is is it okay to to blow up their home city mm-hmm. in order to stop world war three yeah. <laughs> just like let's just extrapolate from <laughs> you know stealing some stuff from a york corporation <laughs> or taking someone's dna to dropping a nuclear bomb let's just get yeah. let's do that whole go up that whole slope in one book but it's almost like it's so weird that they made such a big deal out of like you know there's a whole discussion with like tobias marco and axe um before even the conversation with jake where they're like hacking, but that's illegal. And you're like, wait, what about what? privacy? <laughs> okay, first of all, you already had this conversation in book 16, and then you hacked Web Access America, and exactly. why are we having this conversation again? And it very much, like, after having read the whole book, I'm like, oh, they were trying to establish a theme. Okay, I can see why. It was weird, but I can see why. At the time, I was like, were they just worried that the government was going to get mad at them if they said it was okay to hack stuff? Like, <laughs> I was deeply confused by that conversation because I had just gone back and looked at some comments from earlier in the series and was reminded of episode 16, where in the same podcast episode, I somehow managed to argue <laughs> for murder and against hacking as yes. my moral and ethical stance. So there's um, precedent for this uh, weird uh, yeah. <laughs> seriousness about hacking. I was hacking. like, no, because they convinced me that actually, yes to murder and to hacking. So like, <laughs> why are we having this conversation again? Didn't these characters listen to anamorphology? Yeah, what the heck, you guys? <laughs> Pay attention. Yeah, so that was, that was so surreal. And then, okay, they the, also- The charitable read on that for me was that in that conversation, they bring up the idea of suspending morals during wartime, mm-hmm. which is an interesting frame on it. It should have been like, a okay, but the, why are we doing this bad stuff? And they're like, yeah, obviously it's fine because the, like, the circumstances dictate that it's fine. Mm-hmm. And then for that theme to be carried forward instead of like, like they're, they're protesting too much at the little stuff based yes. on their previous yes, experience. They are. I guess it's like, maybe the Anamorphs would look bad if they're like, <laughs> yeah, no hacking's fine. Stealing people's identities and DNA and stuff is fine. I feel if like you're not a dedicated reader. They but could really have waved it off with like, you know, we hacked stuff. We do it a lot. We try not to steal human DNA, but we had to in this case, the way they have before. Yeah. And one of the things that really struck me as weird, before I knew where the book was going, they make such a huge deal out of stealing people's DNA. And we've discussed this a little bit before, but then they are constantly giving people very serious concussions. <laughs> Thank you. Just like yes. all the time. Yeah. And gives Jake a concussion. Yeah. At some point, Cassie's like, is this person okay? And Marco's like, yeah, he's fine. I just knocked him out. Or he'll like knock someone out and then like put a sheet under or like put a pillow under his head and put a sheet over him. You're like, concussions can ruin people's health for the rest of their lives. Like they could shorten their lifespan by a lot. 
like concussions can seriously mess you up. Like there's a, I would so much, I've said this on the podcast before. I would so much rather have someone steal my DNA than give me a concussion. At one point, Axe is like, it's a good thing. The innocent Marine got knocked to the floor and fell unconscious. And I'm like, is it? Is it? Wouldn't you rather have him see you morph? Like, come on. At one point, Marco says, a little tap on the head never hurt anyone. Yes, that's what it was. Not much anyway. And I was like, That got a note from me. False. No, false. Uh, That was what my note said. It said false. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. And and also, I know that this is like movie logic or whatever. And like in movies all the time, you get concussed, you get hit on the head and you get knocked out for a long period of time. If you get concussed and you're knocked out like for longer than like a few moments, like that is a very, very serious injury. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, that was my concussion rant. I'm glad you guys also participated in this rant. It's it a was good ridiculous, rant. especially in this book where they're making such a big deal out of like ethical choices where they've made the same choice before, but now they're all being like somber and like, oh, the war now justifies anything. We're going to have to do these things well, again. Yeah. So I want to talk about like before we get to the to nuke or not to nuke decision, <laughs> that moment where Jake decides he needs to explicitly reorient them towards the ends justify the means as like Mm -hmm. a way of going forward right so it is weird it is weird how they get to that point but Mm -hmm. i want to think about so you have the special ops team and the scoop also marco is definitely officially part of their like outsider clan now now that he's he's like dead yep (laughs) which i love but they're basically like yeah we'll do this hacking thing we don't need to check in with the other animorphs they have like a little mini debate among themselves but they're like we're fine this is our call uh, Tobias is like, you're going to do it whether I object or not, right? And the ex is like, yeah, totally, man. Like, whatever. But when they talk to Jake, Jake is like, yeah, no, you guys made the right call. Obviously, we're at a point where we have to start doing stuff like this. And then mm-hmm. he has this whole speech where he's like, hey, so, you know, we're in a war. You know, he he he's taking it very seriously. But he's like, look, now that we're probably moving to open war, we need to start doing stuff that we were unwilling to do before. So what do you guys think is behind his decision to like kind of like do a leadership thing to make this point (laughs) like like what is he why where is this coming from and jake and like why is he saying it's the other animorphs now i mean it yeah there's not a specific decision that's really triggering it um so it must be i mean he must have been i don't know turning this over in his head he obviously feels a ridiculous amount of pressure we see this again in this book just like he is constantly weighed down by these decisions and he i don't know he must have been doing some ethical musing on his own I don't know, did you have something specific in mind with that? No. It seemed to me like it was a discussion that he and Cassie had been having. Oh, I like that. That was the justification that I, because one of the things that happens in that scene is Cassie is being Cassie and like being very aware of the unethical decisions that they are being forced to make and how unhappy she is that that's what's going on. And it's another moment of, like we saw in the last book, of Jake being like, Cassie, we've just got to do it. Like, I think he comes over and like puts his Mm. hand on her shoulder and says like, I know that this isn't the decision that you would want us to make, honey, but like, we're going to do it anyway. And I kind of read that as a like, I am bringing this up to show Cassie that I am considering these, what she said, and I am, I have weighed these ethical decisions and I have decided that we got to do this anyway. 
mm-hmm. which you do. That's correct. Um, but that was what I read there. Yeah, hearing you say that, Gray, I'm wondering, it kind of makes sense to me as a follow-up to 43, where mm. the Animorphs were chasing this plan to incinerate everybody in the York pool, and uh, Cassie steps out of the plan, and then she ends up doing a bunch of uh, terrible stuff to save everyone at the end of the day. So I wonder if this is, like, that resolution has happened mm. off screen. Maybe those are those conversations that we're imagining. And then here, he's like, like you're saying, trying to get ahead of it. And also maybe the, I was wondering after 43, the Animorphs never really reckoned with the temptation that Taylor's offer gave them of like, Mm. just do bad stuff and it can be (laughs) over faster, right? Mm -hmm. So I wonder if Jake is, like that plan didn't work, but he's he's kind of realized that they're willing to go there. And so he's he's trying to get ahead of it. Mm. And he's like, you know, he's clearly been thinking about it a lot. There could yeah. also be an element of since 41, Jake being so exhausted with the war that like escalation, escalation is very effective in book 45. Escalation allows them to get more done. So maybe he's just coming around to the idea of like, maybe we should be more aggressive because this needs to end sooner or we'll all be like, yeah. we'll all we'll all get unlucky or run out of stamina eventually. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I can see a couple of like threads from previous books that would lead Jake to want to try and rally the group in this oh, direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when he's talking to Cassie, he says, it always comes down to each of us all alone asking ourselves, am I right in doing whatever it takes for the greater good? And do I trust myself enough to know I won't become evil in the process? Mm-hmm. Which is a really interesting question. Like there's so much to be unpacked in mm-hmm. that. What does it mean to become evil? Like if you're doing something that you think is evil, can you do that thing and not become evil? Does like becoming evil involve some other loss? Like, does that mean you won't be able to like hold back from evil in the future, even when it's not justified? Mm-hmm. And he also says it always comes down to something that personal. And I wonder, there's a lot of stuff later in the book when they're talking about, you know, the nuking decision, like what the decision will do to the person who makes it. Mm-hmm. And that like moral cost to the individual doing the action is an interesting thing to weigh with the like cost to the world of the action being taken or not taken. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it is famously difficult to reconcile those things. Like, yeah. okay, maybe this is the right decision in some way, or like maybe this decision needs to happen from like some sort of like consequentialist or utilitarian like perspective, but like doesn't still making that decision like cause like moral harm to the person doing it? Is that, should that mm-hmm. outweigh everything? It's the whole keeping your hands clean stuff mm-hmm. we've talked about mm-hmm. with Cassie. So like personally, I've always liked the Stannis Baratheon approach. Shout out to people who You're gonna have appreciate to Game of Thrones me. references. Yeah, so it's the idea that uh, doing good stuff doesn't outweigh doing bad stuff. Um, mm. So that in terms of the ends justifying the means, it's like, yeah, sure, it does. But you still need to be accountable in some way for bad stuff that you did. And especially in terms of the, like, there's a pragmatic reason to take that approach in terms of fighting the war. So becoming evil is a very strong statement. But I do get the sense that it's like, 
if Marco had successfully killed his mother in book 30, Mm -hmm. would he have been able to keep fighting? Would he have been able to live with himself? Would he have been tempted to value human life less? Like, Mm -hmm. how would that, what would the psychological Mm -hmm. cost be in terms of his ability to fight sustainably, right? So it's like, it's a little bit, I mean, I'm getting into the nuke dropping thing. It's like, okay, well, we can do this if that wins the war. But Mm. if we do this and it is not a successful end to the war, (laughs) then suddenly we're in this place where like being able to, like, I guess there's like, there is some value in having the moral upper hand in terms of a sustained uh, set of conflicts versus like, okay, well, we'll do the really bad thing, but as long as we win and get to write history, who cares, right? There's some, there's some appeal to that, but the confidence that it will end where you want it to end is really tough. That's sort of, that's fascinating to me because it's recasting this sort of like, this action is wrong and so I should not do it as a utilitarian thing, sort of in terms of like resource preservation and like fight sustainability. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that it's inherently wrong to blow up this city and so you shouldn't do it. It's that blowing up this city might cause so much harm to the Animorph who orders it. And the Animorphs are the only defense Earth has right now. Each of them is incredibly valuable. Therefore, maybe it's more important to preserve their ability to fight than it is to, you know, preserve thousands of people or whatever the opposite cost is. It's, and I feel like that's, that's maybe valid, but it's also skirting the question of like, it's kind of skirting that moral question of like, okay, but if the action is wrong, is it ever justified? Yeah. Well, I think that's what I really love the way Jake and Cassie disagree and reconcile on that issue in that scene. Because mm-hmm. I they've, they've disagreed about this so many times. But yeah. the way that it goes down, right, is Jake is like, I, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't try everything that I thought might work. And Cassie says, like, I'm not sure that I could live with myself if I did do those things. Yeah. And yeah. then Jake makes his point about, like, it comes down to individual choices and doing the best that you can for the greater good. Do you think you can do this without becoming Right, and evil? Cassie is like, well, I disagree with you, but I trust that if anyone can keep his decency, it's you. Yeah. And it's like a really, really sweet moment where yeah. it's like, their trust in each other as people allows them to agree to disagree on these really important moral things. And like, at some point, Axe is kind of just reflecting to himself in the narrative voice, like, I can't believe the fate of billions of humans is coming down to the ethics of six Mm. kids, right? (laughs) Which is like, it's a great, that is a great argument, Axe, for pragmatic (laughs) ethics, right? Like, he wants things to be not situational, but at the end of the day, it's complicated people making these choices, right? Like, it's no one, no one can follow a system of ethical rules perfectly. And so you have to distinguish between people's behavior and like the idea of ethics. I'm so curious about how Cassie has dealt with what she did in 43, where she rescues them from this gas explosion by just going in and killing or nearly killing a bunch of human controllers in this gas pipeline station. And it seems like it devastates her. And we see a tiny bit of that in 44, but it doesn't really get followed up on. And here she's talking about, you know, not being willing to do like everything it takes to achieve your ends which is very much not what she actually chose when under pressure in 43. Like she did choose to fight all these people and save the Animorphs. So I wonder if she is classifying that differently or if she just thinks she shouldn't have done that, but isn't Mm. going to let that determine her actions going forward. I don't know. I'd be so curious to see that. It's interesting because it's like, I do think that Cassie is not her most nuanced self in this book. She's portrayed a little bit like a wet blanket. Like, yeah, like, like, and she's kind of, we need an opposition to the ends justifies the means and that's Cassie, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I do like, that's why I appreciate the really human moment with her and Jake. I also like, there's this bit where Marco is like complaining about how he's not going to get anything out of doing this mission. And Cassie's like, what about saving a bunch of people's lives? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. this is also very much like Cassie, but I also kind of like it as a put down to Marco. Um, but yeah, it's, it is sort of like, I like your Cassie voice. I can't believe they didn't have you narrate the other <laughs> Yeah, but Cassie, you're right. Cassie is not her most nuanced self. And yeah. I feel like both she and Marco get put into this position where there needs to be something to argue against for this debate to happen. And so they are the opposition. So then do we want to talk about, it's so interesting then that Axe starts out being like humans and their situational ethics. <laughs> and then Jake is like, we have to do whatever it takes. And then at the end, Axe is like, hey, Jake, I got this plan that's so crazy it just might work, but it's real bad. And Jake is like, nope. Not that. Not signing up for that. Yeah. And Axe is like, oh, I guess in this situation, I feel better about doing this than Jake <laughs> does. So I'm just going to do it. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what do Thanks. you guys make of that? I mean, it was interesting that that was obviously where the ethical philosophy of this book was heading. It was like, we'll have all these little battles about it. And then at the end, when we get to that point, Axe has been justified by all of these other debates and, and narrative choices throughout the book. He has been justified in making this decision by those discussions to some extent. But it also, to me, seemed a little, well, it seemed out of character for a few reasons, not least of which is, I'm sorry, I don't think a Riths are allowed to knock out their princes. <laughs> no, he's a full warrior now. Oh yeah, he promoted himself. I really I'm so proud that. of him. Sorry, for that's doing a that. side note, but Good I'm really point. pleased with that. Warriors are not allowed to knock out <laughs> their princes. It seems True. like a pretty important part of the code. But Gray, do the ends justify the means in this area as well? Uh, maybe. It's so interesting. That's such a good point, Greg. It's yeah. so interesting that he he uses his andaliteness as a way of motivating and absolving the actions he takes at the end. And he's mm -hmm. conflicted about it in terms of what it says about his andaliteness. But he's completely internalized the human methodology of decision-making, right? He's just doing the same thing Tobias did in mm -hmm. Megamorphs 2, mm -hmm. where he realizes if he makes the decision, he can take the burden of the, the cost off of the rest of the group. What's fascinating, though, is he does end up persuading Rachel, Marco, and Tobias to help him execute the plan, yeah. even though they kind of know what's at stake. I do think that certainly Rachel, probably Marco, and maybe less certainly Tobias could have all been the protagonists of this book and, yes. and done the same thing with Visser 2 at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it makes sense that Jake and Cassie are taken out of commission or for Jake. that. Or Jake. It would have been, you know, he wouldn't have knocked mm -hmm. himself out. But mm -hmm. I think anyone except Cassie could have been the protagonist of this book. Right. Yeah. Well, with Jake, it's interesting because he has a little more of that wanting to return to his normal family thing. So like, mm -hmm. is he really going to blow up his future? Right, like, it would be such an interesting character choice if at this point he was willing. I would I would buy it. I think yeah, he might be. That's interesting. Because like Marco, like Rachel is like, she'll do whatever it takes. Marco is like, he's already dead and his family is not going yeah. to be affected. Right? Yeah. Tobias in a similar way is quote unquote already dead. Like he's an mm -hmm. outsider. Anyway, the point I was making is that the thing that truly motivates Axe to take this drastic action is, it's a couple of things. Well, he, he emerges onto the deck of the aircraft carrier and sees this full-out humans versus Yurks battle. He relives the sort of Normandy Beach moment he had with a, a dying doctor who gets oh, killed yeah. needlessly. Where he sees a soldier mm -hmm. dying. He sees uh, Marco taking care of a, of a soldier dying. And he's like, this has to stop. 
he's like so horrified by the really micro level of soldiers dying in war that he's like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to stop these bad things from happening. That's such an emotional decision, right? Mm, like mm -hmm. he, his horror at the war, his anger at letting things get to this point, that's what makes him willing to take matters into his own hands. And that's not at all Andalite meddling or yeah. Andalite arrogance yeah. or I'm doing the rational thing here. That's like a very understandable human reaction. And he's, yeah. he's completely unaware of how his own emotions are driving him through this. Yeah. I was, okay, so this, this exchange between him and Marco, I, I would like to hear you guys' take on it because I'm a little skeptical of it. So Axe has this like, actually really nice thing he says to Marco. He's like, I have not always trusted you, but you have always proved me wrong. You have always acted for the good of the mission. Please trust me to do the same. Marco laughed harshly. Oh, I trust you to be ruthless, Axeman. Ultra-focused, heartless even. What I'm not sure of is what this stunt is all about. Is it really about saving human lives or about pumping up Andalite glory? Oof. I have no idea where that is coming from. Like, Axe never really acts for Andalite glory. He, I mean, no one even around even knows what an Andalite is. Like, mm -hmm. maybe he thinks it's some internal, like, oh, Axe thinks he has to save everyone thing. I don't know if we've really seen that from Axe either. The only thing that I can think of other than it's lazily written yeah, is yeah. there is that bit in the beginning where Axe's integrity is questioned by the Andalites. So maybe oh. Marco's a little paranoid and he's like, Axe is like, he's going to prove himself to Andalite High Command. He's going to prove that he's but not too attached to humans. He'll kill a bunch of them. To me, to... this is in the context of Axe has knocked out Jake and is taking matters into his own hands, right? Mm -hmm. So it could just be a little bit of this is Marco lashing out in a way that he knows will hurt people because he's mm -hmm. stressed. Like it could also be like, it's not that well justified even in Marco's point yeah. of view. Also, Ted, I asked you yesterday if you knew who the ghostwriter was for this and what else they had written. And um, I would just like to make an argument for lazy writing. Because you know what else this person wrote? 37. <gasps> I like it so much less now. I <laughs> no, so they they this is the ghostwriter who did thirty and thirty-seven. And so like clearly Wait. they're inconsistent. They forgot about their own book where a jet was stolen. <laughs> That's a great point. Wow, I hadn't even thought of it that way. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. What? Yep. Yep. Gestures wildly at screen in frustration. <laughs> yeah. What? I do like yeah. a writing a book about do the ends justify the means theme as penitence for writing 37. <laughs> I need the money guys. I had to write it. It's not the, it's not the ghostwriter's fault. No, 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 I, no. I like 30 not. more than you did. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. And this book, this is, book this was book good. Is written this book fine. Was yeah. The yeah. ending is weirdly rushed, but that's also probably not the ghostwriter's fault. Maybe a little bit the ghostwriter's fault. That ending was so weird. Do we want to talk about how the decision makes X feel at the end? Yeah. Yeah. Let's okay. talk about that. Axe, so he doesn't have to do it. And in fact, doesn't really end up doing anything wrong. He knocks Jake out, which is maybe not great. But all he does is bluff very successfully. Mm -hmm. But there's the possibility that he would have had to follow through on it. I'm actually surprised that Jake doesn't like take more seriously the idea of like, yeah, let's pretend we're going to do this <laughs> because for it to work, you know, both things have to not happen, right? Like if it is successful, neither the Yerk pool nor China will be blown up. So. Well, yeah, a little bit is who can credibly bluff, but like, obviously the Admiral's going to think, Mr. Two's going to think they're all Andalites. So mm -hmm. any of them could credibly bluff. But Axe could have done it with Jake's permission. 
Right, right, right. But it is clear that Axe is, he's going to go through with it if he has to. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, he doesn't say that, but that does seem to be. Is it the end? Um, Would you have done it, Andalite? The Visser's angry voice broke into my solemn thoughts. Would you really have done it? I was unable to respond. I have enough to answer for. And I think, I mean, it seems like he would have done it. He's talking about like, he thinks his friends are going to be really mad at him. He thinks he's risked this like family that he has on earth. He has this really sweet line about I was also afraid of what I would find because home meant more to me than just my scoop and the surrounding landscape. Home meant my fellow warriors, all of them. And I had risked my relationship with them, especially with my prince, by doing what I had done. It's so fascinating that we have two books in in a row of ends justify the means successful betrayals of the group, right? Because like Marco does this like, I'm just going to do the right thing and rescue my dad, like, and- And tell him everything. And tell him everything, (laughs) right. And, you know, that chicken really hasn't come home to roost. Mm, In this one, it acts again, like you said, the bluff works. Mm -hmm. And he definitely goes over Jake's head and like presumably those chickens will come home to roost as well. They have a lot of homeless chickens. Yeah, but it's it's super interesting that like Marco doesn't have to deal with, I guess he has to deal with like Nora getting infested, but he doesn't have to deal with one of his friends. Like mm. they don't, they don't trace, they don't figure out that the animorphs are human and thus yeah. he's not, ru- he's only ruining his own life. Right. Like, and like Axe yeah, there here. there are no negative consequences to his betrayal in terms right, of the animorphs. Right. Yeah. And the same thing here with Axe, like he, the plan doesn't is, have to blow up the city. Right. Right. The plan yeah. goes forward and it's fine. He doesn't have to blow up the city, but it's like, it easily could have been the other way. Right. And so yeah. it's, it's super fascinating to me that like, and to me, this is like this almost more than 45 is Axe's half trend moment where he's like, I'm going to oh. do this thing that's so crazy. It just might work. And it works. And like, are we going to see that from all the animorphs before the end of the series? Like how much, you know, how many times do they get to kind of do these things? Like Mm -hmm. these very, very risky things where they betray the group and then it turns out it's okay. Like we've seen that from Cassie, Marco and Axe now. I want to see the AU where Axe does have to blow up the city and then it's just sort of post very localized apocalypse of... uh... I mean, it is kind of weird that Axe doesn't think about going through with it because it probably would end the war, right? Like if the Yurks are that concentrated in California... Yeah, they're mostly in that town. A lot of them are in the pool itself. Yeah, anyway. If he, yeah, if the explosion manages to take out the ships that were in that underground cavern also. Right. Yeah, I mean, it would still, the ramifications for the Animorphs would still be so bad in terms of like their families all dying. Yeah. But it would be very effective at ending, we think, at ending the war. We certainly haven't seen spread. And we have seen in 43, they decided to blow up the Yurt Pool. Yeah. And then that didn't go very well. And they haven't, like Ted, you were saying, they haven't really talked about that. Um, this is, of course, much more because they'd also be blowing up the whole city. Although, as you pointed out, Gray, they might have been doing that in 43 as well. But this is deliberately, you know, blowing up the whole the whole city. So it is a different mm-hmm. discussion. It was pretty funny, though, for me to be like, wait, 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 now you're debating another thing that you've already done. <laughs> But then I realized, of course, that they're not going to be able to specifically target the Yerk Pool with a nuclear bomb. It's going to be the city. Yeah, good. It's a good point. Great. Do you think they should figure out a way to blow up the city? Like, you know, maybe get their families out if they think it'll end the war. How much of that cultural city center do we think would actually fall in if we blew up the Yerk Pool? Okay, so this is not the nuke scenario then, just blowing up the Yerk Pool? Um... Half of it. I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, because I mean, I feel like that's one of those things where not, I don't think no nuclear option with actual nukes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that, that is not an option for so many reasons. Even if it destroyed the <laughs> year pool and saved the war, you still can't use nuclear weapons. Please don't do that at home, kids. There's, um, they, there's a reason that fallout is, is a metaphorical thing now. It's, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> bad. But also, like, it's one of those things where the certainty of the, of the outcome would be such an important part of mm, considerations. Yeah. Because if you were to, for example, drop a regular plane into the Yerk pool, thereby obliterating just the Yerk pool and that one skyscraper sitting on top of it. Uh-huh. Could you guarantee that that would destroy the Yerk pool and influence the invasion to a point where it would actually stop it? Or are you just taking your best guess and kind of chancing it? Yeah, the plane doesn't seem, I mean, maybe because 37 didn't really happen, but doesn't seem to have had a big effect on the invasion as far as we've seen. Right. They have at times taken specific blows against the Yerk Pool. They tried to put oatmeal in it in 17, didn't go too well. They they did blow up the Candrona in 7, and that mm-hmm. was a big blow. They haven't been too aggressive in like terms of actually destroying the Yerk Pool. And at this point, they might hesitate to do so because... They've learned more about Yerks. They might, you know, Cassie yeah. would certainly object to that. There was the virus that would destroy all Yerks, unfortunately would also destroy all humans. And we never got the ethical debate of what if it would just destroy all Yerks? Are we okay with that? Right. Because like, listen, I'm all for being, you know, pretty ruthless in terms of taking actions that might have negative consequences for a small number of people in terms of, mm-hmm. but if you could stop the full invasion, But I also like to think that I'm practical about it in a way that I don't want to do it if it's like, maybe this will work and maybe only a few people will die. But the other possibility is a lot of people die and it doesn't help. Like, don't do that then. That would be real bad. Yeah. I don't want Jake's job is what I'm saying. Oh, Jake's job. Terrible. Poor Jake. Do you have a stance on this, Ted? My stance is probably that it's not worth it. I'm coming back to my kind of like, how do you know that this how do you know that this will actually end things? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, if you knew that you were taking out all the viscers and someone from the Council of 13 and, you know, that they had all of their intel and stuff there. But like, mm-hmm. given what the Animorphs know about the York operation, I don't think they know enough about how centralized that is. And like, yeah, that seems on okay. the other hand, if you blow up the York pool and like, then the pool ship in orbit, you know, starts blowing Ooh. up cities because it has a Death Star style laser on it that you didn't know about, like <laughs> that would obviously be a really bad outcome. Like, yeah. and of course, if they have that, then they shouldn't be worried about humans fighting back. But, you know, True. who knows? Um, I, I feel like it would be like, you'd want to consider it as a contingency plan, but probably not something to actively pursue. I think that you guys have a good point about not knowing how effective it would be. I will say that in this book, Visser 2, who was willing to give up his own life, apparently, for this plan, was not willing to give up the Yerk Pool for it. So apparently, losing the Yerk Pool would be such a strategic disadvantage that they were able to use it to hold this Visser mm. and his plan hostage. Yeah. Yeah. So that might be more of an argument in favor of like, okay, this might actually end things. Let's yeah. contend with whether or not we're okay with this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. 
it's also it certainly seems hard to like this is going back to my like utilitarianism when it comes to a sustained fight argument but like if the animorphs are responsible for killing most of the people that they know in their home city they're not going to feel like they're the heroes anymore so oh. that's going to be real tough yes. for their ability yeah. to to tie up all the loose ends so it might be a poor choice um, logistically even if it right yeah right is fairly effective one other thing that sort of end of series continuity is I feel like Jake is losing his grip a little bit not in terms mm. of like going crazy but like literally he cannot control what the other animorphs are doing as effectively yeah. because you know it's like multiple multiple things have happened in the past like in this book and the previous one where his authority is being usurped mm-hmm. and on the one hand they all kind of know each other pretty well and they're all in it together and like we see that Axe betrays Jake specifically in this book and then a majority of the team supports him mm-hmm. right so you know like no one's really Although none of them know oh jake actually said no to this and then axe knocked him out i guess not i think tobias is like jake doesn't know about this does he or like you're not here with jake's permission are you right but maybe they assume he did ask jake i don't know right 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 no but so but it's right, definitely yeah. the 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 limits of jake's ability to provide a coherent this is what animorphs do now strategy it's getting yeah. to a breaking point, which is been, alarming. Like, he's never controlled all of them. Mm. But yeah, that, that is a little concerning. Yep. Can we talk about Axe's spurt of anger? He has this oh, bit. Yeah. So like we saw back in, what was it? 31, um, Jake asks Axe to torture Chapman and Axe is like, I don't want to do oh, this. Yeah. And so here he has this moment where in anger, he is like, he like shoots this or two in the leg and like he does some other stuff where he's like being very like I'm going to kill you unless you do what I say kind of approach and he feels super angry about it. Then he gets knocked out and when he wakes up, he's ashamed and he's like, oh man, I really let my emotions get the better of me or whatever. And he feels embarrassed at that anger. But then when he's flying in the jet plane with this or two at the end, he thinks explicitly like I'm threatening this person I'm like performing mental torture by being like, I'm going to do all these terrible things. I'm like exploiting his Mm -hmm, emotional mm -hmm. vulnerabilities and weaknesses and stuff in a way that makes him uncomfortable again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he does seem to have a conflicted relationship with emotions. And we see that also with him, like his discomfort with the human morph, even while he really enjoys it, he's like, it's a temptation. And yeah, he maybe has some issues with like controlling his own emotions where he feels like he needs to, and he's uncomfortable when he can't and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Axe. Oh. oh, I had like some thoughts about Chapman or maybe some questions about Chapman. Oh, let's talk about it. Why the heck doesn't Chapman kill Axe? Like, why would you shoot a morph-capable creature in the leg to keep them in a room? Like, Yerks are so dumb. At least infest him while he's unconscious. You have an this... unconscious Andalite bandit. No, this speaks to the lack of bureaucratic infrastructure that Esplin is bringing to the table as Mr. One. If he, if Chapman is the best he has after all of the (laughs) screw-ups that Chapman has been a part of through the series, Uh to put on this, like, obviously Chapman didn't become a viscer, but, like, if Chapman's all he's got, then Esplin is really... Really hurting. Yeah. The... (laughs) 
it's a very brittle hierarchy under the newly minted Visser One. Yeah, and I think okay. So when we ranked the villains, I think it was Avian Peaser who took who took issue with our putting Chapman so high. And I was like, I don't know. He's like been you know done some good stuff, especially you know he brought the Yorks to Earth in the first place. Uh, yeah, I think I give but, him a lot of credit for that. In in series other than that, yeah, he's very low. This is really lowering him. Like he <laughs> like he does nothing in this book except for shoot axe in the leg of his morph. Ridiculous. Pathetic. I, I, I do think that should Chapman survive the series and somehow become uninfested, Hedrick Chapman's tell-all novel will be a bestseller. <laughs> Excellent prediction. I could not agree more. If only he knew that he had brought the Yurks to Earth, he could have told the whole Andalite Chronicles story. It's really sad that that was wiped from his memory. Well, I love the idea that it gets published and then there's like a hard-hitting Washington Post investigative journalism piece where it's like, did Chapman actually cause this whole, (gasps) right? Amazing. And he's like, no, I have no memory of that. (laughs) And they have like psychologists like talk to him and they're like, no, he definitely has no memory of that. (laughs) <laughs> and they're like, I don't know, we have testimony from this person in the Texan homeworld. Right. Ronan Farrow does some investigative journalism, <laughs> interviewing all of the people who were involved in that decision. Right. Mm-hmm. So speaking of Visser One being in charge now. Yeah. He's not great at it. <laughs> he's also not in this book. Yeah. A Visser Two, I thought, was such an interesting choice to, to put in charge of this particular operation because unless I am very much misunderstanding the kind of timeline here, which is totally possible, um, Mm -hmm. Visser 2 is like new to earth, right? Yeah, I think so. We haven't seen him before. I'm not sure that Visser 2 is going to be the best able to handle the vagaries of earth life and all of the ways in which things can go wrong. Okay, it's possible that he is very newly promoted. Like he might have been someone else on Earth who got promoted up the chain. Like when Visser 1 got promoted, he was able to promote his lackey Mm -hmm. to Visser 2. Poor Chapman wasn't good enough for the promotion, obviously. But it is weird. It's like, okay, Visser 1, you're in charge now. You can start this open warfare on Earth. What you should do is have one of our other top military leaders do it. Yeah. For some reason, we want Vissers 1 and 2 in on this, and Visser 2 will take charge of this, even though it's called Operation 9466. Yeah. It must I be clear confused. that something, like, so an interesting thing that hasn't quite, I don't totally understand what my headcanon for it should be, is in 45, wasn't it true that Visser 1 had kind of bungled the Anadi homeworld situation? And that's why that they're about sense. to be executed? Yeah. But we learned that they still have this unsprung trap for the Andalite fleet. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. what Edris did wrong huh. if they if they still have this advantage over the Andalites. Right, and the Andalites so seem like point. haven't even shown you up You could yet. imagine, like, Edris got the old Visser 2 killed. Or, you know, like, there was some other kind of, like, thing that happened. And now it's, like, this real vacuum of power on the York side that Esplan mm-hmm. can just step into. Okay, related question. The Andalite fleet apparently hasn't gotten to the Anadi homeworld yet. What the heck are they doing? Like, yeah. did Zeus do a detour yeah. thing? It's only been since... <laughs> Where when, the heck is the Andalite fleet? How long has fleet? it been? Oh yeah, did something happen to Z-Space again? Oh, well, it's only been since 38 that the... Or since Visser? Since Visser mm-hmm. that the Anadi homeworld situation has it's been like around. 10 books. So that's like, that is all, maybe like... That's gotta be months. Six months, yeah. probably. 
That's wild. Yeah. These books are wild. <laughs> maybe the Naughty Homeworld is a home galaxy and it's really spread out. Yeah. Maybe they're doing other stuff there. Or there's there a third place to send the fleet. Yeah. Is Andalite like bureaucracy just so inflexible Slow, that right. they haven't sent the fleet anywhere? Do they really not want to use their fleet at all and are just hoping these conflicts resolve on their own? Yeah, it's fascinating. Man, anyway, sorry, that took us away from the Visser hierarchy, but there's a lot of confusing elements in this whole other species war decisions thing. Yep, that was that was my whole point. It was just, I'm very confused yeah, by it. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So I do have some other little things. But yeah, yeah I, I had a few other little things. I wanted to talk about, there's a lot of sexism in this book. There's a lot of sexism and military knowledge where like Jake, okay, we haven't mentioned Jake's extensive military it's knowledge. It's like a chapter long of like, why is it that when often in fiction, not always and not in real life, but often when young males have extensive knowledge of like some sort of culturally appropriate thing like military history or what mm -hmm. the hell an aircraft carrier is and how like how many people are on it and like how long it is whatever mm -hmm. or cars or something it's like cool but when i have extensive knowledge of like the tamara pierce universe it's not cool <laughs> no, no you're wrong it is wasn't, cool. wait wasn't marco kind of making fun of jake by egging him <laughs> on that was that was what i got out of that scene is he's like come on jake tell us more stupid facts <laughs> i don't but think was, i mean a little bit but also I, like it was a chapter of stuff about aircraft it was carriers. definitely this ghostwriter researched aircraft carriers and wanted us to know all about what she learned i i will say i was Point is well taken that it's like there are some sexist undertones here. Oh, I hadn't but, even gotten to that yet. <laughs> okay, but like I, it feels very Jake, and like oh, it was seen, very Jake. We've yeah. seen yeah, him yeah. basically like he's like, well, I guess if I'm like this general, I better learn about you know history and stuff. And so I just I love the idea that he yeah. read some military entries in an encyclopedia, and now he knows all <laughs> of this stuff. And it's like you know like he when he was it reminds me of when he's rattling off all the famous battles where there were yeah. no there was no oatmeal. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like, he's just Ice like he's carrier. Like, how much oatmeal does it right, have? On he's it? almost. He's almost like finally. I'm like get to be on an aircraft carrier and like do all this stuff. No, I thought that was amazing and perfectly like in accordance with like everything we've seen from him, where he has been doing military research. But mm -hmm. I was floored by the extent of his knowledge. But then like the other guys kind of chime in with like little things that they know about stuff. And then Rachel's like, Cassie, don't you feel kind of left out? And Cassie's like, Yeah, but I don't mind. And I was like. What? No. No. Rachel's reading The Art of War. She doesn't know anything about military stuff. And then a little while later, you know, there's something about the power of the carrier and Rachel asks the question and Axe is like, yes, of course, Rachel would be interested in anything like capable of large scale destruction. And, and I was like, first of all, rude, but accurate, but also accurate. Like she would be interested in this. Why is it that Tobias and Marco can know stuff about this, but Rachel, of course, has never looked up a military fact in her right. life because she's a girl. She's also the warrior. How do they make her the warrior and then forget that they could also have her know stuff about the military, maybe? It was very frustrating. Very frustrating. Yeah. I also, just on the same sexist token, apparently there were no women on this entire aircraft yeah, carrier. Yeah, yeah. And when people got into, when like the battle started, Axe says there were calls for mothers and wives. And I was like, really? There were no women? And then I was like, maybe all the women were gay. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you know, they, it was don't ask, don't tell, but they were about to die, so they didn't care. The only obviously possible that redemption. Is, obviously, well, that is not the case. They okay, just didn't think of women. But. It's even worse, though. Right, they didn't think of women. It, it's also valid that Axe is bringing his sexism from book 38 to bear here. Because also, despite how awful Astrid is, he has dreams of getting together with her one day. Yes, yep. yes, he does. I'm gonna like discount that a little. She's <laughs> literally the only Andalite female he's seen in years. And you know, they did have like a little bit of a romance. Mm. You can see how he would run away with that in his imagination. I don't know. <laughs> to me, it was just like Estrid's place is in the home with me on the Andalite home world. Oh, and no. like if with I, I can children. rescue her from her, you know, the temptations of genocide presented by Andalite grad school. <laughs> I was particularly annoyed by that that reference to her because of all of the other this was the first one where I was like shipping Axe and Marco. He had a lot of Marco thoughts. A lot of, he has a lot of thoughts about Marco. Like a yeah. surprising number of thoughts about Marco. And a lot of them are about like this one time Marco was unattractive. <laughs> the rest of the time. Oh, I love that line. It was like a lot oh, of I stuff. Missed, wait, what is, I missed that line. So the line is, it's something like, Marco rolled his eyes, an unfortunate and unattractive expression. <laughs> and then oh, yeah. there's, there's a few times. There's a lot he, about Marco being cranky. Uh, he's like, obviously Marco was cranky again. Yes. He has another thing where um, he's like, this person's skin was a little bit lighter than Marco's. Lighter than Marco's. I was like, this is your skin reference. Nice. Yeah, like Marco is kind of his baseline for, and like he, when he's talking about Rachel, he says it was because of an attribute Marco calls her nerves of steel. Like a lot mm. of stuff was done. Citing Marco for a lot. Yep. Was about been, to a lot of They've clearly been scooping together a lot. Wow. That's what the kids are calling it these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that seems accurate. So I would like to say, I love the point that Rachel should know almost as much about military not, stuff. Not as much as Jake, but like as much as the guy. At least she would be interested, yeah. right? Yeah. And like she's read the Art of War, right? But Rachel does get some good badass Rachel moments in the book. Mm, One, does. I think Rachel would be killer at escape rooms. They have that Ooh. whole thing where they're like, here's the data that we got from the interception. Like what are, you know, like let's figure out what it means. And Rachel's like, yeah, these are coordinates and times. Um, yep. Why didn't you bring this to us sooner? And everyone's like, Okay, right. So she she completely just like solved that problem immediately, and then is frustrated that she wasn't able to solve it like hours ago, <laughs> which I love. But also the Axe Rachel team up on the stealing a plane mission where they yeah. both so one Rachel at least be a one fighter pilot. right. There's one female fighter pilot right. So there mm-hmm. is one woman oh, in the military okay. right that Rachel gets well more. Well done, maybe. But only because the plot requires that Rachel not You're more correct. Yes. But whatever. <laughs> but that whole bit where I, Axe and Rachel are basically like. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure we're like really important here. Everyone's saluting us. So like, are we ready to do this? Let's do this. And then they knock out everybody around the plane and like jump in and fly away. I loved it so much. It's like another really good like competence porn scene of the Animorphs just doing stuff and being awesome. It was also, I think they just said like, we eliminated the crew and then, you know, and then like not killed them. But like they had just like in one sentence, they're like, yeah, the crew was gone. So we flew away. Yeah. It was really good, really good. There was one other great, unsurprisingly, my favorite um, Rachel moment was when they have crash landed the plane and Axe like fights his way out of his pressure suit and is resurfacing, he's looking for everybody else. And Rachel has 
partially morphed and is holding Tobias up Aww. so that he can morph. So like of all the fleas she saved, she found the Tobias one and like made <laughs> sure he was okay until he could morph into something of that could steal the water. And I was like, yes, she did. There was I really one, love that. There was one insulting line where Marco has been kind of baiting Rachel and he's like, man, I just can't win with her. Tobias, you must be a saint. Which like, rude. But also, Mercora genocide aside, accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and killing Hitler. <laughs> okay, that, yeah, okay. In the present. <laughs> In this timeline. Yeah. Sort yeah. of. Time recorded. travel accepted. Yeah. Right, yeah, time travel, right. That's that's why Tobias couldn't have been the one in this book, because he would never steal a plane and threaten to the city unless past. he was time traveling. Right. It's a good exactly. point, yeah. <laughs> oh, I wanted to talk about, I can't remember if this is the first time we've seen Axe and Elfengor's parents' names laid out like that. Oh, yeah, I want right to talk about that. Theirs. Yeah, there's like some clear naming patterns happening here. So I'm just going to pronounce them the way that I do, which is probably not going to be universally accepted. So he says, my name is Aximili Eskarath Isthel. I'm an Andalite, son of Nurlin Cyrenil Kurat and Forle Eskarath Mahin, younger brother of celebrated war prince Elfengor Cyrenil Shemtul. And there's this, uh, there's a pattern where it looks like Axe's middle, or Axe's first last name, I don't know, his, the second of his three names is the same as one of his parents, and Alfingor's mi- like middle name is the same as the other of the parents. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it's like a, I don't know, like that's what we might consider like the last name, and you pass it on to the kid, and like each parent yeah. passes theirs to one kid. I wondered how that worked with the first and second kid. Like, does the second kid get the, la- the middle name of the mother, and the, you know, like, how does that exactly work? And given the Andalites have pretty strict population control, right? Yeah, usually it would just be one kid. And so maybe they couldn't pass on both names. Yeah, I I think we know from maybe book eight what Axe's father's name is. Is his father Norlin? I don't remember. Okay, I don't remember either. Yeah. But I didn't bother looking it up. Yeah. One of the other elements that I've celebrated as recently as 44 is when normal humans find out there's an alien invasion and get on the side of the Animorphs. Yeah. And there was so much of that in this that book. Great. And I, I loved, loved it. I loved it so much. Like, like Axe, basically, he because he's been stealing people's uh, DNA. And at one point, he goes up to a guy and he's like, hey, man, can I steal your DNA? And then I was like, yeah, dude, like, fight that alien scum. Like, <laughs> go, go, go. I just, I That's love it. Great. I love it so much. And I love the idea. Like, of course, you're going to fight back if an unknown, if a UFO starts shooting lasers at your aircraft carrier, right? Sure. But there's like a little bit about how they're like, yeah, so stuff is going going down. But you know, none of the people that I know are on my side have been mauled by a tiger. So I'm going to trust the tiger. <laughs> yeah. And I really like that. It was so funny. I just, I loved that reaction. Like, especially because as you were saying, it is a very gendered space like that aircraft carrier, all men. And for some reason that like makes me think that this is a bunch, like kind of a boys club. And they're like, there is a tiger and that tiger is about to fight an alien. Hell yeah. <laughs> I am so on board for this. Yes. What do you need? Okay, that would be great. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we could do we could do some 90s stuff. I feel like there's some pretty pretty robust 90s or I guess at this point so, 2000, but still very I much have, that decade. I have a couple I have a a serious 90s topic and a rant, a 90s topic. Okay. I don't know. Is one of them about lime green IMAX? Nope. Okay. Can that was I my ask, favorite 90s reference. Do we know what year this was actually 
this actually came out in? Still 2000, it must right? Must be 2000. Okay. Yeah, like late 2000 by this point, maybe. Okay. Yeah. I think the series wraps up in spring or summer of, of 2001. Good to know. I have a question for you guys. How much did IMAX cost? Because Rachel can apparently afford one on a few months of her credit card allowance, which I did not get that kind of allowance when I was in junior high school. I, I suspect they need her parents. credit card I think Rachel. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I de- when, when he said I got one of the new model Apple computers, my note was, oh my God, please let it be one of those colored IMAX. Yeah. And then two chapters later, it was a lime green IMAX. And I was like, yeah. The best well, choice. Best color choice. But her parents are scene. a celebrity journalist and a lawyer. So yes, presumably, yeah. presumably, she's if they're her. giving her, and, and she's like a mall rat, right? Yeah, so. yeah. I, it doesn't surprise me that she'd be able to spend a few thousand bucks. You think an iMac was a few thousand bucks at that point? Wouldn't it be? Was it? I don't know. Has it, have, have iMacs gotten absolutely more expensive? Because like a new Apple computer is probably like 1500 bucks, right? Like Pretty for much, a, yeah. For a, the cheap model? Gray, are you looking it up? I am. In summer of 2000, the iMac was sold. This is the, this is the, the desktop. Not oh, the, so that, that'll be cheaper. Right, yes, yes. The desktop was $800. Yeah. Okay. All right. That that seems more in line with what I was thinking. Because I feel like Macs have gotten fancier. Maybe it's just because I'm remembering the large, bulbous shape. Well, of no, actually, phones. you're right that that was before, yeah, that was before the modern era of Apple design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes You sense. definitely couldn't get that a laptop for under like $1,100 if you right. meant like bare minimum. Right. Some of them went up to like $1,300. Yeah. The IMAX? Yeah. Okay. We'll see. I don't know how much uh, yeah, so she got. Yeah, so getting 1000 bucks, like, I don't know. A few months. A few months if she's getting 200 bucks a month. She does shop a lot and she doesn't have a job. So that seems reasonable. Yeah. I mean, for some definition of reasonable, plausible. Uh, yeah, so that was uh, the most wonderful 90s reference. But please, Ted, tell us your more substantial one, which I think I okay. know what it is. I would like to talk about how very many ways their plan to hack the NSA (laughs) early in this book makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I'm so excited about this. I I had a lot of feelings about it. And then this morning, I pinged uh, one of my friends who has worked in kind of intelligence analysis in various capacities over the years and like has a, you know, better than civilian understanding of what the... NSA might have been doing in the year 2000. And uh, so I have an even more informed perspective on basically like in order for these like two pages to happen, you have to make an incredible number of assumptions about things that would not be true at all. Right. So I think the assumption that the ghostwriter has about the way this works, and this is sure, this is what happens in most media about hacking or whatever, right? It's like, Hacking is like a continuous spectrum, or maybe like there are a couple of tiers, right? And you start out like normal computer has like hacking capacity 10, right? (laughs) NSA has like hacking capacity 100, right? Yerks maybe have like hacking capacity like 120, 150, but Axe brings to bear like a plus 100, you know, bonus to your hacking score. So like, you know, like... (laughs) You can do like human computer plus X isn't quite good enough to beat the Yerks, but NSA plus X is enough to beat the Yerks, right? That's kind of how, that's kind of how this is like the setup, right? That's not at all how (laughs) encryption works. It's not at all how the NSA works. It's not at all how the internet works in the year 2000, (laughs) right? So 
in order for this to be true, right? So the Yerks have some kind of encryption protocol that they're using on their transmission going out, right? So in order for Axe to be able to decrypt it successfully, he needs to know the algorithm the Yerks are using. There is no universal <laughs> encryption, decryption, like spectrum that you're working on, right? There are a number of uh, sophisticated methods of encryption uh, that would all require a diverse array of responses that would all be probably resource and time intensive to do. So if Axe isn't going into this already knowing the algorithm that the Yerks are using and how best to beat it in a short amount of time, then he's not going to stand a chance of doing it, right? If he breaks into the NSA, even if he could do that, which he can't, and I'll get to that, he would have to hope that somehow the Yerks are using a method that the NSA has better than Axe-capable algorithms for decrypting. So there's no reason to think that unless the Yerks are somehow using human technology because that's what Mm -hmm. the NSA has kind of optimized their code-breaking software to do. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that code-breaking software. In no way is it connected to the internet. (laughs) The NSA is not that stupid. They have made mistakes but it's not like there's some like big computer in the NSA that's just like putting out its public IP address ready for acts <laughs> to like get in there and steal the sensitive NSA stuff. You can okay. look up on Wikipedia, like despite all of the Edward Snowden stuff that's happened and all that we know about the inner workings of the NSA, you can look up the Wikipedia entry for like basic NSA cryptanalysis techniques. It's like a list of code names and nothing more. Mm-hmm. They're not going to put that stuff on the internet somewhere <laughs> where acts can get in, right? So, sure. so what is Axe trying to do at this point? What if he is looking for a like a lot of computer hardware resources so he can say perform a bunch of parallel cryptanalysis operations, right? Like okay, maybe he's just he's just kind of resource yeah. constrained, right? There is absolutely no reason to target the NSA for this <laughs> because while they do have a server farm, they're going to be best able <laughs> yep. to protect against intrusions. If you need intelligence or logic from the NSA, it is physically impossible for you to get it over the internet. And if you need a server farm, go to IBM, go to some <laughs> like, go to some like incompetent IT person who, who has to supply like a corporate infrastructure and just get a bunch of servers that are just, uh, you know, someone plugged it into the internet because it's the year 2000. They don't know, they don't know what they're doing. They're not uh-huh. even kind of like threat analysis, that kind of thing. Right. If all you need is a bunch of servers, you can get that from someone who is, who is not the NSA. Mm-hmm. So all this being said, the real problem that Axe has is that he does not have a like a well encoded like binary representation of what the Yerks are transmitting that he can apply an algorithm to. He's okay. working on like this shaky like radio radio <laughs> transmission thing that's like kind of like coming through in patches or whatever. Uh-huh. So maybe the only way that you can justify this is like Axe is he has there's so much noise in the Yerks transmission that he has the like tools at his disposal to decrypt it perfectly, but he needs more powerful technology to remove noise noise from the signal so that he can yeah so that he can like (laughs) clearly apply his known cryptographic techniques to solving this problem i mean that would explain why every transmission he got was useful (laughs) he got two transmissions and both of them were like let us talk about this one operation that's Mm -hmm, happening mm -hmm. and he did not get the like daily update changing of the guards at the yerk pool like new codes for the mcdonald's (laughs) 
Yeah, even if he needed more computing power to remove noise or try out a bunch of algorithms, it was like instant. He's like, I did the thing. Then we got good transmissions. And I was like, oh, I expected that to be like a large component of the plot. Okay, no, it's done. Nonsense. Nothing makes any sense ever. Fine. Oh, yeah. The other thing that I wanted to rant about is Axe presents this idea that the NSA detected him and then stopped blocking him, which my friend pointed out. There's no way the NSA would have detected this in real time and stopped it. Like, if this were possible, then they wouldn't have known about it for days. The least of my concerns about this plan but and plot, but a good point. So, yeah, it really doesn't, it really doesn't make any sense in any way at all. It does not. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, that's it. And in some ways it is very 90s. <laughs> End of yeah. rant. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You know what else was very 90s? Marco's whole speech about how people on the street do not expect that there could be another world war. Oh, or thank even you. Another yeah, that, war. that was the thing I wanted to bring up again. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, Americans. I mean, we've got no enemies at sea, uh-huh. not many on land, and those aren't exactly real scary. It's so, so this is happening in the decade between like the breakup of the USSR and 9 11. Like yep. this is this is the end of that decade, but it's still it's the uh, it's the end of history kind of viewpoint where like war is over, the U.S. is fine, like, the only threat is these aliens, and no one would believe that that's a real thing. That was a nice decade. <laughs> well, it's so fascinating. Was doing great, like the economy was booming. We had no real enemies. IMAX came out. <laughs> it's so fascinating how his analysis is like he's getting to the right idea for the wrong reason because the end of history idea was like super flawed as everyone's about to find out. Mm -hmm. But his reason for doubting it is because not that the, not that like, Oh, China is a rising power, you know, like Russia's not out of the picture. Mm -hmm. What about asymmetric non-nation state warfare? Like he doesn't have that understanding. He's just like, turns out aliens are real and they, they also want to blow up America. (laughs) Right. Like, which is not at all a sound reason to be poking holes in the end of history idea. But, you know, it kind of gets to the same, the same point. I was really intrigued by the choice of China. I was wondering, like, what was, what was behind that? Like, I feel like probably when I was, like, 15 or whatever, China wasn't super on my radar as, like, power that's going to be dangerous. Um, it might have, it might, I might just not have realized. But I was, I was kind of curious, like, did they decide that China was the, like, it's not incredibly stereotypical to villainize them in this way? Like, it's not like Russians who have been the enemy in every, like, you know, spy movie or whatever in the last half century. So, like, I don't know, China is, like, something new. Um, to me, it, it goes pretty well with the sort of military preparedness, like kind of thinking that Marco is espousing. Because mm-hmm. if you are a sort of like political realist, I think that the writing has been on the wall since the 90s that China will become at some point in the 21st century a USSR-like rival to the United States in terms of global hegemony. Like that's that was a pretty in popular idea. In terms of idea. global hegemony, yes. And certainly in economic terms and in terms of like industry and manufacturing, whatever. Do you know what they are emphatically not a comp- competitor to the U.S. for? Nuclear weapons. Yeah, so that's not, I definitely don't associate. I mean, this is something I know very little about. I'm not like, ah, nuclear threats, China. I mean, I looked it up. They are, you know, one of the short list of like. Yeah, but they have like nuclear 300. Powers. We have 6,000. Like, if, if you're going to start this battle with somebody, it would have been Russia, even in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're, if you're truly trying to start World War III as a nuclear war, 
it's still not China. So, but maybe that Russia also, I believe, has probably more of the like dead man switch type things in play where if they get attacked, they're going to shoot their whole arsenal. Yeah. So like maybe it's actually more rational to pick China than mm-hmm. Russia if you don't want a complete nuclear holocaust, but you want limited nuclear warfare. I'm not giving I don't want to give the Yerks that much credit. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I wonder what this book, the end of the series, would have looked like if it had all been happening a year later. Yeah. Like if 9-11 had happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm so intrigued by this series for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that continually surprises me is just trying to remember what the world was like in the 2000s. I mean, I was a fully functional human being. It's not like I was, you know, a a child. I was a teenager. But like, it's still, I don't remember that sense of clear superiority with no real enemies anywhere. Oh, I do. That permeates this book. I mean, I guess I remember it a little bit. Like, I distinctly remember when airports changed Mm -hmm. because we used to travel to visit my grandparents internationally all the time and so like I distinctly remember that change but like the that sense of peace I mean you know those of us with anxiety never live in a sense of peace but like (laughs) I do not remember that peace and prosperity of the 90s as well and I think part of it is because you know if you were a teenager when when 9-11 happened like that is so much a part of how you have become an adult and like that just has permeated my feelings about the United States for so long that I like probably just don't remember, but Mm -hmm. it's been really interesting. And especially with stuff like crashing a jet into a tower in the middle of a city. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you guys can't do that. (laughs) And like, of course they can. It hadn't happened yet. Like not a big deal. And it's still very surprising. And like, it weirds me out every time this stuff comes up in these books. I think like the Animorphs, it would have been super hard probably to finish the series without reckoning with the Animorphs as terrorists a lot more yeah. directly than they have. Yeah. Right? Because even the, their what their approach here is a lot more like, we're making the World War II decision again. Is it okay to drop a bomb? Yeah. Right? Like, oh, yeah. it's, it's not like they're, they've, they've had more kind of like terrorist behavior type situations in the books before, but I think it would be very, it would be very differently felt to have your protagonists be like, they're, they're pretty unproblematically freedom fighters, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's yeah, going to be really hard to see them that way. Yeah, have to have shifted. Yeah. All right. Any other last thoughts before I go on to my predictions? There's the, there, did you have, do you, do you notice that weird text showing up again in the middle yeah. of the book? In the middle. Did you have that that time? I Greg? did. Yeah. I did look it up. It was in my paper copy. The one we talked about. Did you about look up like what it is? Cause it's definitely not what I think it I is. I didn't look up this, this one in my paper copy. I assumed it was also there. I didn't look up anything about it. Yeah. I'm really intrigued to, I mean, probably. Well, so what did this one say? Do you guys remember? It was a lot more threatening, like directly, like. Everything is going as planned. Soon you will all be ours. I mean, sounds like a Yerk thing to me. I thought it was a Yerk thing. Yeah. This was right before they encountered, or this was right before they found out about the whole plan to start the war. Oh, a follow-up to the to the '90s thing. Um, I did just want to point out there were there were several. There was at least one extended passage where Axe talked about the like the magnificence of the aircraft aircraft carrier and the glory of everyone fighting back, and it was just very like 
unproblematically pro-American military in a way that like, I don't think you would see today. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I bet you would see it from Apple Grant because they were both, I think they were both military families. I think oh, they really? have like a lot of the, oh, maybe then. a lot of the like respect for the soldier and the fight stuff feels very much like I know people who have mm -hmm. been in military service. Yeah. So I, I think that, I don't know how much if you grew up with that background in the 80s and 90s, the last 20 years would have soured you on the goals. Of the I mean, it probably would sour you more on the like the top brass, but probably mm -hmm. a lot less so on individual soldiers. Yeah, no, I mean, and I'm, and I'm fine with like, yeah, I, I, I do think there's people, especially they're fighting the Yerks. I mean, it's something that like listening to myself again, being like, oh, it's so cool to see the humans rallying to the Animorph side and fighting back. It's really easy in any war story to kind of buy into the the glory of war when it happens, right? Like mm. it's it's a really compelling narrative to see the like the warriors fighting the good fight for heroic reasons and not have to deal with the uglier parts of it. And so like you do get a little bit of the glory of war stuff here, but you also get the like people needlessly dying like horrors of war. It was side interesting of it. after everything that happened in Megamorphs three and especially Axe's observations on that, like all the horrors of war throughout human history, that there wasn't more reflection on like, okay, it's great that these people on this aircraft carrier are fighting these invading Yerks, but this aircraft carrier exists so they can fight other humans. Like there's a reason that the mutually assured destruction plan would have worked way better than they wanted to. Yeah. It's another, it's another kind of like, it's an open question about how much that will get addressed mm -hmm. because like, it's very much kind of like in the background here, it's not made the central theme, but yeah. So speaking of the future of the series, Gray, you want to talk about the resistance? Okay. Is this going to be a Jake book? Uh, look at the cover and tell us. I mean, it looks like Jake, but I'm not great at telling these cover model, it is, models it apart. It is a Jake book. So I yeah. think it's no, a Jake the, book. There's, there's no more, no more twists. They, they reset the numbering starting with 41, but. I don't really believe you guys, but okay. Um, it's a Jake <laughs> That's book. Fair. He, this is, I think this must be a new cover model because it is not good. Um, the, the cover mm -hmm. model themselves, it's like, they look a lot younger. He looks a lot younger than previous. I think all of the models get replaced at some point, except for Cassie. Cassie's okay. the only one who didn't like move out of state and thus the un is unavailable. For yeah, they got shots. another That's small, sullen boy to play Jake. Well, it could have been an age thing, but I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and he is, I regret to tell you, morphing into a beaver. It's very bad. I, I, I don't, I mean, it, there have been worse ones for sure, but like a beaver, really, really? So useful, right? I mean, you're it's welcome not even to a look giraffe. At, They're very busy. You're welcome to look at the inside cover as well. It's useless. You should tell us what the, um, the cut text is. And the cut text is, what would you do if you lost your mind to a year? Have we not had that one already? I feel like we've seen that like this three happened times. at least, yeah, at least twice. So this is, I think that they're going to continue to like do the picking up where we left off thing. Um, so this is instead of kind of start from scratch and tell us a thing. So I think this is going to start with them. They've just completed this mission and uh, Visser 2 is still around and they're trying to decide whether they're going to, it's going to be about the tactics that they're using. So Jake is going to try and figure out like they were doing in this book, again, kind of a continuation of the theme of like, is this the kind of thing where we're going to make a big deal of it? Like splash it everywhere and like have a big fight in the middle of everywhere, like get the military involved, or are we going to infiltrate the Yerk pool again and try and take down the Condorna rays? And it's going to be tactics and Jake deciding what to do. Mm, okay. 
Nice. And I hope it's also going to be a little bit about Jake being the leader who in the last two books, as we've already discussed, two of his people have gone rogue. Ooh, yeah. I hope that's a theme. I don't remember this book in any way at all. Great. Do you have any question to add? What important moment from American history plays a pivotal role in this book? Oh, that's right. (laughs) The building of the Hoover Dam. Nice choice. Love it. I'll give you... (laughs) I don't know how many times you've listened to the first couple of episodes of Animorphology, but I definitely flagged this book ahead of time as one of the ones I was most concerned about revisiting. I don't know if you remember what I said or if it- I don't remember what you said. Shoot, I've listened to them a couple times, but not recently enough to remember. Yeah. Um, What'd you say? I I just think, I don't want to take the moment of realization about (laughs) what this book is doing away from you in any way. It's, yeah, that's the right reaction. So- (laughs) I'm hoping that approximately 50% of the book is well-written enough that I will like it. Wow, that's a, that's a real low bar there. <laughs> You'll understand why. <laughs> I have concerns, but okay. Yeah, we all do. All right, all well, right, we'll find out. I'm excited for this one. No memory, but now I know what Ted's talking about. I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, hey, you guys. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. What was the deception in this one? Um, the title. Okay.